Join with me as we read the word. Uh, this morning we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested for ten days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that we would be changed by an encounter with you. Lord, I pray that not only would our minds change, not only would possibly even our outward actions change, but Lord, we know ultimately it comes only from a change of heart. And that's only something you can do. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do for your glory and your glory alone. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know I have actually shared this story before. If you don't remember me sharing it, then that's okay. It's the first time you've heard it from me. Uh, but possibly you do remember this. But it bears repeating this morning just because of the nature of the text we are in. But in 156 AD, there was a man who was the bishop. As you just heard Brother David read, uh, this is the message to the church in Smyrna. And the man who was the bishop or the lead pastor of the church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. In 156 AD, the reason this is so interesting is because the book of Revelation was written in approximately 95 AD, approximately 60 years before Polycarp was murdered, or martyred rather, by the Romans in a Colosseum by being burned at the stake. What's even more interesting is that when Revelation was written, Polycarp would have been around 25 years old. And we know from a man named Irenaeus, an early church father, and I promise you, I know, I'm probably telling you more than you care to know at this point. But Irenaeus, early church father, his writings, his historical accuracy is well known and well documented. Um, and everyone believes that what he wrote historically can be believed and is, in fact, trustworthy. And Irenaeus tells us uh, that he knew a man named Polycarp, and he knew Polycarp by name and, and in person. And he knew uh, that the apostle John, uh, when he was an old man, took a young man to be his disciple or he was his mentor and that young man was in fact Polycarp. And when he was 20 years old, the apostle John named Polycarp to be the bishop of Smyrna. And so we have a historical record and we know exactly what happened to Polycarp. And he remained the bishop or the lead pastor or in this passage, as we talked about last week, the angel, the messenger, um, to the church in Smyrna. He remained that from the time he was 20 until the time he died at the hands of the Romans when he was 86 years old. 
Under the emperor, uh, maybe you've heard of this emperor if you've seen the movie Gladiator, uh, but under the emperor Marcus Aurelius, uh, they instituted something called Caesar worship. And under uh, the, the practice of Caesar worship, people were required to declare Caesar to be their lord. Uh, this is what the Romans ordered Polycarp to do. They wanted Polycarp to declare Caesar to be his lord, his god. They wanted Polycarp to blaspheme and deny the name of Jesus Christ. They wanted him to give a, and, and they wanted him to give an idolatrous incense offering at the feet of the statue of Caesar. And Polycarp simply refused. And because he refused to do this, he was tied to a stake and he was set on fire. And his last words that were heard were this, 80 and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme him, my savior and my king? And with that, Polycarp died. He lived for Christ as he says, he lived for him. He was the bishop of Smyrna for some 66 years, and ultimately he died for Christ. And what we'll see from this passage this morning is that faithful disciples will live for Christ now and with Christ forever. And as we look at this passage uh, to the church at Smyrna, it is important to note, out of all seven of these uh, messages to the different churches, only two of them uh, did Jesus have nothing negative to say. And Smyrna is the first. Um, he had nothing negative to say, even the church we looked at last week, who did so many amazing things. He said, but this one thing I have against you, that you have left the love you had at first. But he has nothing negative to say to the church at Smyrna uh, in the sense of something they did. Now, he doesn't have the most comforting message, at least in the way that we would define it. And when we look at this passage this morning, we should desire... We should desire to be faithful disciples. And as faithful disciples, first we see in verse 8, that we should fix our eyes on Christ. We should fix our eyes on Christ. It says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He is the first and the last. This is something amazing to know about Christ. He is um, the preexistent one. He is the first and he is the last. Now notice, it does not say that he is at the first and he is at the last. It says he is the first and he is the last. That means that there is nothing in all of existence that occurred prior to Jesus Christ. There is nothing on, in, in existence, there is nothing in this universe, there is nothing that goes beyond Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. The, the words that we use sometimes in church and the words that's used in scripture is Greek phrases. It says, and Jesus himself reveals himself as the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning, which is the first word in the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, the last uh, the, he is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He is the first and the last. And so he tells us he is the eternal one, but then he also says this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This would have been of extreme comfort to those who are hearing this message, and we'll see why in just a moment. But think about these two amazing truths that are being stated by Jesus Christ about himself. He is both the first and the last. There is nothing that precedes him. There is nothing that goes 
beyond him. Because of that, that means that there's nothing he does not know about and there is nothing that takes him by surprise. There is nothing that will come that he is shocked about. There is nothing that can occur that he does not have control over. He is the first and the last, but he is also the one who was dead, the one who died and came back to life. Which means... Not only is there nothing before Jesus, not only is there nothing that will outlast Jesus, but that means even if you and I experience the worst thing on the face of the earth, you see, there are all kinds of things that can happen, all kinds of bad things that can occur. But in the end, human beings believe, I think most, it's, it's kind of written into our DNA, is that death is primarily and almost exclusively the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being, and yet scripture for a believer, it flips it on its head. Death is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Death is the best thing that could ever happen to you. And the reason it is is simple. Because he was dead and he rose again, he overcame, and because Jesus overcame, so will you if you're in Christ. So it says, I am the first and the last. I am the one who died and came to life. The eternal nature of Christ should overwhelm us. The death and resurrection of Christ Jesus should overwhelm us. See, it should bring extreme peace to know that there is nothing that you may experience. There is nothing that could occur. I love this. It doesn't just say he knows the end. It says he is the end. That means there's nothing that can happen to you that takes him by surprise. That also means that whatever's going to happen to you tomorrow, he's already there, he's already aware, and he already overcame it. So Jesus declares himself to be this. And we're going to see why this is so important to them. Believer, Jesus is the eternal God. He is the risen Savior. And there is nothing that you can face in this life, even death itself, that he cannot guide you through, and he has not already overcome. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Because regardless of what happens in this life, regardless of what change may come, regardless of what thing may occur, fix your eyes on Jesus because he never changes. Because he is the beginning and the end. The one who died and rose to life. Now as a faithful disciple... Despite all the voices um, that you may hear and all the, uh, the, the, the voice, uh, those seeking to speak into your life and tell you what to do and all the things that may be vying for your attention, even today, fix your eyes on Christ. Because as we fix our eyes on Christ, we must know that as faithful disciples, we should steal ourselves for suffering. We should steal ourselves for suffering. I know somebody in this room just now thought, this is not why I came to church this morning. I came to church to be uplifted. I came to church to be encouraged. I came to church to walk out feeling better about myself. Can I be really honest with you? Church is not, walk, is not about feeling better about yourself. Now, you may find, you will, if you're in Christ, you will find deep comfort and peace in Christ. But make no mistake about it. We do not live to feel better about ourselves or to make much of ourselves. We live for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to make much of him. And so he tells us that as faithful disciples, we got to steal ourselves for suffering. Look at what's going on 
in the church in Smyrna. We get a, a kind of an idea of what's going on. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Now, if you've ever been, which I know most have since uh, on, on fall break, which is something I've never heard of before in my life coming from Texas. But on fall break, um, everybody in creation and the like surrounding six zip codes leaves and goes to Florida. So I'm pretty sure everybody knows what a wave is. But if you have never been to the beach, uh, then when you go to the beach and you walk off the sand and you walk into the water and you're standing there and you feel the waves crashing against you and maybe you look out over the horizon and you see this massive wave crest and it's coming towards you. I mean, it's not enough to like kill you or anything, but you can tell it's coming. What do you do? When it's about to get there, you kind of widen your feet a little bit. You, you grip down because it's going to hit you. You better get ready for what's coming because you can see it from a long way off. And that's exactly what Jesus is telling the church at Smyrna right now about what is about to happen. He's telling them, widen your stance and get ready because here it comes. And he says that maybe, I don't know, for me, in all seven of these letters, we talked about this last week, but in all seven of these, or these messages rather, in all seven of them, he says the same thing at the very beginning. He says, I know, I know. That may be two of the most comforting words in all of scripture. It says, I know. And why would it be a comfort? Well, one, when we see what's going on in a minute, the fact that Jesus knows should be of extreme comfort. See, no matter what you're going through, I know sometimes we go through some of the darkest parts of life. And when we go through those darkest times in life, it's easy to say, does God even know? Does God even care? And Jesus starts off his message with, I know. I know. I'm aware. He says, I know. But what does he say he is aware of? He says, I know your tribulation. Now, this word, it doesn't just mean a one-time thing, like a, an event that just occurs, and it's pretty bad, and he's saying, I'm aware of what happened to you. Uh, the word actually literally means extended suffering over a period of time. So Jesus says, I'm aware of how bad it's been for you for quite some time. I'm aware of how awful it's been, and it is your day today. But not only that, then he kind of gives us an indication of what's going on. He says, I am aware of your tribulation and your poverty your poverty now this word it, it does mean we look at it and say okay so they were struggling financially well that's because that's the word we use uh, or that's what we think of when we think of poverty but see this means much more than just they don't have any money this is not a group of people who because of their faith they're struggling to be able to go out to the movies on the weekend or struggling to figure out if they're even going to be able to pay the light bill this is a group of people who are told this word literally means the denial of basic human needs so what he's saying is, I am aware of your extended time of suffering and the fact that you cannot even provide food and shelter for yourself or your family. That's what this is. This is extreme poverty. This is, this is without anything. He says, I'm aware of your poverty. Why would they have poverty? Well, because in this day and age, whenever they stood for the faith, when they stood for Christ, they would have been excluded from things. They would have not been able to get a job necessarily. They would have not been able to have trade or commerce in the local marketplace. And so because of their faith, 
They have been suffering for an extended period of time to the point that they can't even provide food or clothing or shelter in the sense of basic human needs. So all that, and yet he says, I am aware of your poverty. And then in this little parentheses, it says, but you are rich. But you are rich. Well, obviously, if they can't provide uh, basic human material needs, then he does not mean rich materially. He means rich spiritually or rich eternally. I just as a little side note, I'll say, do you notice this message right here from Jesus Christ is the complete opposite of what would be known as the health or wealth prosperity gospel today? Jesus said it is possible to be poverty stricken and still be wealthy spiritually. See, the health and wealth gospel says if you're not wealthy spiritually, then if you're not wealthy physically, then there's something wrong with you spiritually. Jesus says that they are just, they're, they're richer than any king spiritually, but physically they have nothing. So he says, you are rich spiritually. You're rich eternally. And then he says, and the slander, or literally the, the blasphemy that you experience of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a, are a synagogue of Satan. Slander. So when it says that, you say, okay, so I get it. They can't provide basic physical needs. Um, they're, they're struggling with all those things, and that's terrible. But slander, I mean, okay, so people are talking bad about them. Well, it's a little bit more than that. See, in this time period, especially in this area of Asia Minor, the Romans um, and the Jews, as we'll see in a minute, the Jews themselves uh, did the same thing. But they wouldn't, uh, Christians wouldn't worship the Roman pantheon of gods. And so they were actually called atheists. Uh, they were referred to as atheists. They were, and even in Rome, being an atheist was a crime. They had the Lord's Supper. And when they had the Lord's Supper, they would say what Jesus said when, we took, when he took the Lord's Supper. And he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this and remember. This is the new covenant of my blood, as often as you drink it. So um, he who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, that kind of thing. And so because of that, uh, they decided to tell everyone in the world that Christians were cannibals. They were also, uh, because they called one another brother and sister, and they referred to everybody as the family of God, they were referred to as sexual deviants. And because they wouldn't call Caesar Lord, they were called insurrectionists, which in Rome was the worst possible crime that you could commit. And most all of these were actually punishable by death. By the way, in Rome, pretty much everything was punishable by death. Do good, you're fine. You do anything wrong, you're probably going to die. So these are a big deal. These were laws that they were supposedly breaking in the Roman world. And it kept them from being able to do things. That's why they couldn't have these basic human needs. That's why they had extended suffering and were experiencing extreme poverty. So they're going through all these things. And it says... It's the slander of those who say that they are Jews. So it's not the Romans that are making up these things. It's the Jews who are making up these things. But notice what it says. Those who say that they are Jews and are not. Now Romans chapter 2 verse 28. Matthew chapter 3 verse 9. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 and so on. Um, Paul tells us 
um, about these Jews, or Jesus himself refers to it, but uh, about these that say that they are Jews, but Paul basically says, if they stand against the people of God and they stand against Christ, they are not truly Jews. They may be Jews ethnically, but they are not spiritually Jews. And so that's what he means when he says, they are, but they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, because they are slanderers. They're accusers of Christians, and that's what Satan is. He is a slanderer. He is an accuser. Now, we know historically, I told you the story of Polycarp being martyred for his faith. Do you know who the primary ones who spoke against Polycarp and got him burned at the stake? It was, in fact, the Jews of Smyrna who turned against him. Then he says this in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, this tense means that they're already suffering, but Jesus is telling them, this is basically his way of saying, I know you're suffering, but it's about to get a whole lot worse. Doesn't that sound like a warm and fuzzy message to get on a Sunday morning? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. See, modern Christianity um, is expecting it to say, fear not because I'm going to deliver you from suffering. Fear not because I'm going to keep you from suffering. Jesus does not say either one of those. Jesus says, fear not about the suffering that is coming. Those things you are about to suffer. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Modern Christianity would want to hear Jesus say, do not be afraid. Suffering is coming, but I'm going to remove you from it before it happens. You notice here, Jesus never, you can go all the way through the end, Jesus never promises to remove them from suffering. In fact... He promises them the opposite. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Notice who's doing this. It's the devil. Okay, the church has an enemy. The church has a real enemy. The kingdom of God has a real enemy. He is seeking to destroy the people of God, to destroy the body of Christ, and to destroy the work of the kingdom in this world. Make no mistake about it, the devil is active. And he desires to destroy God's people. But look at what it says. It says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. That you may be tested. It's their faith that's being tested. Just like James said, that whenever you go through, remember he said, uh, do not consider it, uh, consider it joy, brothers uh, and sisters, when you encounter various trials and difficulties, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience. And when patience has had its full course, it produces maturity or perfection. And then he also says that we are tried like, like gold or silver in a furnace, seven times purified. It gets hot, it gets hard, but that's how we are shown to be pure so it says, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Now we read this, and oftentimes people say, okay, so ten days. The number ten is the number of such and such, and, and there are ten words that start from the beginning of this to the end. And there are ten, okay, so the first ten books of the New Testament are trying, and they're trying to walk through all these, so what could it mean? What could these ten days mean? I'm going to say it again. I said it last week. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. What does it mean? It means 10 days. 
as in one week plus three. That's what, ten, ten days. He says you will suffer for ten days and you will have tribulation. Now you say, why? why? How do you know that? Well, one, that's a very specific number. But two, he's going to make a reference to something in a minute that lets us know exactly what he's talking about. We also know about the story of Polycarp, so we know something about what went on in that day. He said ten days. See, the key to understanding this is the specific number of days. They would know this immediately. The people in Smyrna, when they read this message and it says that you, you're going to be thrown in prison. That's pretty specific. You're going to be thrown in prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. And in that moment, everybody in Smyrna, Smyrna, all these Christians in Smyrna would have known exactly what he was talking about. Because it was in fact the well-known Roman custom. That when you violated the law of the state, you were thrown in prison 10 days prior to the gladiatorial games. So you would have been put in prison and 10 days later you're going to go out in the Colosseum or a Colosseum. And face gladiators or wild animals or to be burned at the stake. So when he said 10 days, they knew exactly what he meant. This is about to get really bad for you. Or is it? See, this church was facing something that for those of us in America, we can hardly wrap our minds around. We can hardly wrap our minds around the idea that they just got a letter from Jesus Christ through their pastor to let them know that a very large majority of them were about to be thrown in prison and then turned loose in the Colosseum ten days later to be ripped apart by wild animals, killed by gladiators, or burned at the stake. This is not a warm and fuzzy Sunday morning message. They got this, and it's difficult for us to, we struggle to even wrap our minds around it. We say, man, I was hoping, like I said a minute ago, I was hoping to go out of this place on cloud nine, feeling good this morning. I hope that you do, but for a far different reason than you think. See, because we have brothers and sisters in this world, even right now. They don't struggle at all to wrap their minds around what this is saying. They don't struggle at all to wrap their minds around what it means to be thrown in prison for their faith, to be persecuted for their faith, both physically and economically and in every other way. They don't struggle at all to know what it means to have people come into their church and kill people. They don't struggle at all to understand what it means to have their pastor thrown in prison and forgotten about. They don't struggle at all to wrap their minds around it. They know exactly what it means. Make no mistake, in this world, we have one enemy. We have one enemy, one who's trying to destroy the church, one who's trying to destroy the work of Christ, and he will do any and everything possible. And if that was all that we knew, and if that was all that we could be prepared for, hey, it's going to get really bad, that would not be a very comforting message. But praise God, that's not where this passage ends. See, because not only do we need to steal ourselves for suffering, because make no mistake about it, while we may not suffer or you might not suffer at this specific level or this particular level, if you stand for Christ, you will struggle. You will suffer. Paul told Timothy, he said, behold, I promise you this, I tell you this, that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Like I said last week, it's not one that you want to stitch on a pillow, but it's a promise nonetheless. And see, 
while things may get difficult. And we need to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and live for him now. When we do this, when, when we come, we will come to realize that this world and its, its, its trappings are fading and our time here is fleeting. Then, as faithful disciples, we should focus our hearts on eternity. We should focus our hearts on eternity. That's the message he gives them here. He says, look, it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. But then look what he says in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death. Notice how long faithfulness needs to last. Right? Faithfulness as a believer in Jesus Christ is not a, a few day thing and then I wander away. It is completely foreign to the New Testament, which is so common today, where people can say, oh no, I'm a Christian because I did such and such a long time ago, but then I have lived my life any way I've wanted to from that point on, but I know when I die I'm going to go to heaven. That is foreign to New Testament Christianity. He says, remain faithful when? Unto death. And then the phrase that kind of helps us understand exactly what's going on. He says, and I will give you the crown of life. Oh, man, that sounds great. Big glowing crown. That's actually not the word at all. There are two words in Greek, at least primarily used in the New Testament, for crown. The first one is the word we get diadem from. That's a royal crown, a regal crown, the kind of crown we think of, golden with jewels and all that other stuff. There's another word um, in Greek for crown. It's the word stephanos. And the word stephanos is the, if you remember, if you've seen like pictures of old Greek or... or, um, Roman games, uh, the one who wins, the victor, they get a, a, a laurel wreath crown of leaves that go around their head, if you've ever seen that. That's what the victor would get. That was like their trophy for winning. That word is Stephanos. That's the word that's used here. Uh, Jesus does not say that if you overcome, if you remain faithful unto death, I will give you a regal crown. He says if you remain faithful unto death, I will give you the victor's crown. So why is that important? Remember, some of you are going to be throwing, the devil's going to throw some of you into prison, and you're going to be there for 10 days. That's the gladiatorial games. And then he says, but if you remain faithful unto death, I will give you the Stephanos, the victor's crown. Why? Because in the gladiatorial games, when a gladiator would kill everybody in the Colosseum, they would be thrown the Stephanos. They would be given this laurel wreath to wear on their head. What Jesus is telling them is, you may lose in the Colosseum, but I will give you the victor's crown. You may die physically, but you're going to get a crown that far surpasses what that gladiator gets. See, this is real churches with real issues, not figurative where we can just sort of generally apply it. These are real people facing death, and Jesus is telling them, you're going to face death, Face it with faith, and when you face it with faith and then you die, you may not get the victor's crown from Rome, but you will get the victor's crown from me. I will give you the crown of what? Of life. The victor's crown of life. But they're going to die. Why is it the victor's crown of life? Because he's not as concerned with their physical life as he is with their eternal life. He's saying, you may die here temporally, but you will live forever. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
And the one who conquers, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Notice he does not say that if you remain faithful to me, you will not be hurt by the first death. Why? Because he just told them they were going to be. I mean, he just told them this is what's going to happen. So why is it, what is it, first death and second death? You know, all the time, I, I mean, I'm like, I don't know. I, I've been told by my children and my wife that I'm an old man trapped in a young man's body. So, but, but YOLO, you only live once. Okay? Sort of true, sort of not. See, as a human being, you will live once. If you know Jesus Christ... You will live twice. And you will die once. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you will live once. And you will die twice. See, because if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will live this life. And then you will die physically. But without Christ, when you die physically, you will also die eternally. You will forever suffer the eternal death of hell. And that's what he means. He says, if you will overcome to the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. He's talking about eternal life. If you remain faithful to Christ. Now, that does not mean, again, that if you remain faithful to Christ, that's how you earn your salvation. He's saying if you remain faithful to Christ, it proves your salvation. Why? Because he said you were going to be tested. It's proving your salvation. It's not earning your salvation. You are, you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. But when you remain faithful, you prove that you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. See, and if you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're watching online, here's the truth. You will live this life. You may live it, and you may have what would be considered even an abundant life in this life. But one day, one day, you will die. And when you die, you will stand before the Lord. And you will not have Jesus Christ on your side. You will not be forgiven of your sins. And you will spend eternity in hell. And you will experience the second death. But did you know that Jesus, the Son of God, experienced death. The worst kind of death. So that you would not have to experience the second death. He did that so that you might have life and life eternal as he talks about here. But only if you put your faith in him. Only if you trust him. Only if he is your Lord. Only if he is your master. Only if you believe that he died for you and rose again. Why? Because he is the beginning and the end. The first and the last. The one who died and came to life. And because he died and came to life, he can give you life. Not life now. Yes. But life eternal. If that's you this morning, you can place your faith and trust in him. Do so now. Do not face the second death. Run to Jesus, the author of life. Believer, regardless of what you may be facing, regardless of what is in your life now, and regardless of what may be coming, because of your faith in Christ, even if it gets to the point of death, remember we are called to live with him now, or for him now, excuse me, and with him eternally. In 1866, there was a man named T. 
T-O Chisholm. T-O Chisholm. And you may be aware of him, uh, maybe you're not, but maybe you be aware of him. He is a hymn writer. He wrote hymns like, Oh, to be like thee. Maybe you've never heard of that one. You've probably heard of the other one that he's most famous for, which is the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. What you may not know is that in 1866, he was born in a log cabin in Simpson County, Kentucky, just outside of Franklin on a small family farm on Steel Road in the Lake Spring community near Lake Springs Baptist Church. He was 21 years of age, and he was the editor, or the associate editor, rather, of the Franklin Favorite, which is actually still in publication today. He got called, to the, he came to the faith in Christ, he was called to the ministry, and he, for one year, he was in the ministry for one year. Uh, then his health overtook him, and he, he had significant health problems, and he could not continue. Uh, but he pastored a church in Scottsville, Kentucky. And in 1917, he wrote these words. And I believe they capture what it means to live for Jesus now and to live with eternity in mind. This is the other song that he's probably most famous for, which is a song called Living for Jesus. Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is is the pathway of blessing for me. Living for Jesus who died in my place, bearing on Calvary my sin and disgrace. Such love constrains me to answer his call and follow his leading and give him my all. Living for Jesus wherever I am, doing each duty in his holy name, Willing to suffer affliction and loss, deeming each trial a part of my cross. Living for Jesus through earth's little while, my dearest treasure is the light of his smile. Seeking the lost ones, he died to redeem, bringing the weary to find rest in him. O oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee, For thou in thine atonement didst give thyself for me. I own no other master, and my heart shall be thy throne. My life I give, henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. Faithful disciples live for Christ now and with him in eternity. Are you living for Christ? Are you living for him in such a way as to understand that regardless of what happens in this life, you can live for Jesus. You can know Jesus. You can trust Jesus. And even though he may not remove the suffering, even if it comes to the point of your death, he will give you the crown of life, the victor's crown, and you will reign with Jesus for eternity. You can stand strong, brothers and sisters, because as faithful disciples... As faithful disciples, we can trust Jesus Christ and we must fix our eyes on him. As faithful disciples, we need to steal ourselves for suffering. But as faithful disciples, we need to live with our eyes focused on eternity. Are you living for Jesus? And if the answer is, well, not the way I should be, then today, make this moment today to say, Jesus, I'm going to live. Just as 
Chisholm said here, I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone.